This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 26, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Sherry Kagan discusses adding quantum dots to electronic devices. And Catherine Matasik is here with a peek at the science news quiz. Catherine Matasik is here for something a little different. In addition to being an editor for our daily news site, She's the editor for our weekly news quiz. I'm sometimes a contributor to the quiz, but this week I've really staunchly avoided any quiz, even a lot of science news, which is really tough in this building and in everyday life. Um, but anyway, she's going to give me some quiz questions on the air right now, and I'm, I'm afraid it's not going to be pretty. I really haven't been paying attention, so this is going to be mostly just whatever is gone into my head through osmosis or possibly from past knowledge. We're only going to do a couple, so if you want to hear more or you want to read more anyway, you'll have to go to the site. Okay, Catherine, hit me with your best shot. You ready for the smackdown? Yeah. Okay. So what if I told you that scientists came up with a new life hack, but that this one was literal? Okay. Personally, yeah, personally, I feel like this term is finally being used in the right way. Anyway, that's just what a team of scientists led by George Church at Harvard University has been doing. They announced last week that they had designed a genome from scratch that uses a protein coding oh. scheme different from that of all known life. So you ready for the question? I think so. Which organism served as the basis for their hack? Oh, it's got to be bacteria. Do I have to say E. coli? Well, I was about to give you choices. Oh, well, did I get it? But instead, I'm going to ring the bell because <laughs> you got it. You got okay, it. Okay, that's awesome. I, I can't believe this. We started out with a little conversation about how hard this was going to be. <laughs> clearly, clearly, you're a genius. Um, <laughs> but for those of you out there who have not yet read this story, Church and his group have finally done something that most scientists once considered science fiction. 
they designed a genome that replaced seven codons. Now, these are DNA triplets that code for a specific protein or mark the end of genes with different codons in E. coli. The design that they came up with required 62,000 changes to the DNA. Making this project, once it's complete, the most complicated genetic engineering feat ever completed. All right. All right. I'm ready for number You're two. ready for number two. Mm-hmm. So this one is a little near and dear to my heart, um, since I probably, like a lot of people around here, consider myself a word person. Oh, because I was thinking linguistics, China. Well, something could be along anything. those lines. Yeah. It could there be. We go. But anyway, here, here you have gotten the correct answer again. It's a linguistics question. And I'm going to start without giving you an answer, and you're going to have to come up with it. If I were to ask you how many words you know, what would you say? Ah, uh, wow. That is a real stumper. Uh-huh. This reminds me of one of the rules about the quiz. <laughs> so when you want to give a number answer, people will be really stumped without some clues. Oh, my gosh. It's so true. And, um, and Can I, I have a, a factor? Okay. So how about this? So there's one thing that we really have to do here. If you're going to even come close to being able to answer this question, right? Um, and it still may not help. <laughs> um, but what we have to do is we have to define a word, oh, right? Okay. What is a word? Is life hacking a word? Yes. For example, two words, one word, multi-word expression. Oh. What about Jack Harkness? Okay, no, I don't know what any of those. Or just are. Jack. Okay, okay. So clearly, you're not you're not a Torchwood fan. That's okay. Oh. But anyway, the point is, is that that. Second thing I just said is a proper name. And proper names are going to be the same across all languages. So a lot of people analyzing language will say, you know, something like that is not specific to language, so it doesn't count as a word. Wow. Okay, so if you get out, you know, if you get rid of all the proper nouns, if you get rid of these multi-word phrases, you know, you have a very different set of numbers, right? This really starts to remind me of infinite sets and problems involving infinite sets. So, okay, so now I'm going to cut to the chase, and I'll just tell you what one group of researchers did. They settled on something called a lemma. And what a lemma is, is it's a type of word that excludes proper nouns, it excludes multi-word phrases, and it excludes something called inflected words. So, for example, help counts as a word, but helplessly does not. So with that definition, my friend... Are you any closer to your answer? To how many I know or how many exist in the world? How many you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, well, mm, I could ask you the other one, too. 200,000. Okay. So you're doing way better than a typical <laughs> 20-year-old. The study, also may I compliment you on your bravery, <laughs> the study performed as an online test found that the average English-speaking American knows about 42,000. Wow. Of these lemmas that I was talking about by the age of 20. Okay, I have to interrupt here. Yes. I saw this language test mm-hmm. on Slack. Yes. I didn't realize it was related to the story, and I took it. You took it. What I was your did. score? Do you want to say your score? 84. <gasps> you are above average. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a quiz within a quiz. It is, and if readers want to find out approximately how many words they know or how many lemmas, they can take the same test online. I have a link to it in our latest quiz, and then they can actually look at the paper and sort of put two and two together and you if they can really want to make things complicated. Compare yourself to Sarah. Exactly. <laughs> well, let me, I'll just, I'll just give you the results. 
So, so far, when, when the researchers wrote the paper, about 220,000 people had taken this test that you're talking about, which is online. And the way it works is, as you know, you were given a list of 100 words. Some of them are real, some of them are made up. I think it's like 67 real, 33 made up. And then you have to decide very quickly which ones are actual entries in the dictionary, right? Right. How did you feel when you were taking it? Well, so it was very interesting because I, at the end, I didn't say anything that was a fake word was real. Nothing. That's fantastic. And then when I looked at a list of words, I said, no, those aren't real words. I already kind of knew their meaning, despite Mm -hmm. the fact saying that they weren't words. And I'm not really sure what was going on in my brain. And I think that if I took it again, I would do better. Well, yeah, you can employ different strategies, yeah. as I as I realized as I was taking it three and four times in a row <laughs> to try and get a better score. But what was interesting, not totally unexpected, is that the scores went up with age. A typical 60-year-old, for example, knew about 6,000 more words than the 20-year-olds. High scores, or those in the top 5%, knew an average of 52,000 oh. words. And low scores, or those in the bottom 5%, knew an average of 27,000. Interesting. Yeah, so I actually didn't see the raw number like that. I mm-hmm. only saw my percentage score, so I in no way cheated and guessed 200,000 based on my score. <laughs> Very good. I love this. It's a quiz within a quiz exactly. within a quiz. <laughs> okay. You ready for the next question? Yeah. You know, you've been really taking it easy on me, Catherine. Uh-huh. I feel like... I'm doing okay here, yeah. except for 200,000 is a lot bigger than 40,000. Well, it is. I mean, but you know. We, we... Uh, yes. All right. So the next question, tracking poverty. Tracking poverty is tough, and it's even tougher if you can't conduct on-the-ground surveys. So like going door to door and asking people, you know, how much money do they make in an average year? What is their savings? These on-the-ground surveys are considered the gold standard for economists and development experts. Unfortunately, getting those surveys done is really tough, especially in places that are hard to reach or rural. And so a group of scientists has come up with a new way of estimating poverty from the sky. <laughs> there's, your, there's your clue. Now the question is, what are they using for their new method? I'm going to give you choices. All right, I'm going to wait for the choices. Okay, ready? All right, choice number one, satellite photos. Choice number two, cell phone networks. Choice number three, aerial recording devices. And finally, number four, drone drop surveys. What is an aerial recording device? Is that what they're looking at or what they're using, the tool? That's the tool that they're using. So actually, and in this case, it would be audio. Can you go back through one more time on the choices? Okay. First is satellite photos. Second is cell phone networks. Third is aerial recording devices, audio, and fourth is drone drop surveys. Now that last one's pretty, that would also be pretty intense going to collect those surveys unless you can drone them back. Ugh. I'm going to go with satellite photos for 5,000. 5,000 words? <laughs> All <laughs> yes, right. Yes. You win. You win. Yes. You're now at 47,000. Good I guess. I don't really understand how it worked though if I kind of understand that they would be able to take pictures from outer space, but then how can they how can they figure out from these images that there are poor people there? So it used to be that social scientists would collect images of the Earth at night using the glow of electric lights to figure out where rich people and poor people lived. You know, and this is just a rough approximation, right? You're not going to get any 
real solid numbers. So a team of social and computer scientists from Stanford University decided they would try their luck with images taken during the daytime. Now what this did was it allowed them to see from the sky other key indicators of poverty, including, for example, how far away people live from wells and urban marketplaces. They took information from these daytime images and they combined them with something they already knew, which was per capita income for different locations in five countries, Nigeria, Tanzania, Uganda, Malawi, and Rwanda. They then trained a computer to create a statistical model that using this data could accurately predict income based on certain features that were visible in the satellite images. Now, again, this is not perfect. This is still a rough rough estimate. But it turns out that these images are dramatically better than just the nighttime images alone. So it's a better understanding of the distribution of poverty now? Yeah. It turns out that these daytime images are 81% more accurate in predicting poverty in places under the absolute poverty line, which according to the World Bank is $1.90 a day, and 99% more accurate in areas where incomes are much less. Very cool. Okay, Catherine. I've had enough. (laughs) I do like how some of the questions made me try to remember my basic science knowledge and others are checking to see, you know, if I've actually been paying attention to the news, which I tried not to this time. Okay, Catherine, do you want to tell us about anything else on the site this week? So aside from the quiz, we have a story on the first autonomous, entirely soft robot. And we have another story on a new method for making wholly transparent mice. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an editor for the Daily News site and the Weekly News Quiz. What if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S., Wonder's online investment platform allows you to earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Your investment in Wonder's fully managed solar investment funds goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly payments directly deposited into your bank account. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash science. That's wonder with a U. Wondercapital.com slash science. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. You can already buy a quantum dot television, but it's really just the beginning of the infiltration of quantum dots into our everyday lives. Sherry Kagan is here to talk about her in-depth review of this technology that she wrote with uh, three other colleagues published in this week's issue. So Sherry, let's start with the basics. What are quantum dots? Well, Sarah, first what I want to introduce is that this work is a collaboration between uh, my colleagues Efrat Lifshitz at the Technion, Ted Sargent at the University of Toronto, and Dimitri Tlapin at the University of Chicago. The work really brings together our expertise in understanding quantum dot materials and their electronic and optical properties. That really ties to why quantum dots. 
Quantum dots are sort of nanoscale, sort of something on the order of 2 to about 20 nanometers typically when we talk about quantum dots, but they're nanoscale pieces of what you know of as bulk semiconductors. When you say bulk semiconductors, what should people be thinking about? So think about the silicon chip in your processor, right? You have to, they grow a large single crystal of silicon, but you can only get it so big. Right. It's pretty cool. I watched a video. They actually grow a crystal over time and then slice it into pieces. That's right. Which is a pretty awkward process if you want something very large, for example, or very flexible because it is a crystal. When I say quantum dot, what are the key components? So some of the materials in particular that we're talking about, if you think about the periodic table, they come from 2.6 or 3.5 or 4.6 semiconductors. Semiconductors that we know from many of our technologies today But instead, we make them from sort of bottom-up processes by wet chemical synthetic methods. And so we introduce the elements into a reaction flask. And in doing so, we create just small pieces of the semiconductor. And they typically have on the outside some kind of what we call organic ligands, kind of like surfactants, not so different than what you have in shampoo. But they have organic groups on the outside that help to take these quantum dots and allow us to put them into solvents, and make them what look like inks. Why are they called quantum dots? What are their characteristics that make them what they are? Okay, so they're called quantum dots because at the small size scale, we have what was known as quantum confinement. The fact that the physical size of the dot is smaller than the natural length scale, for example, for when we shine light and create an electron and hole. And so as a result, because the box, the size of the dot, is smaller than that, as we we sort of squeeze the electron and hole into the dot. And therefore, as we change the size of the dot, we change the size of the box. And therefore, these properties, electronic and optical properties, the color that you see depends on their size. Can you set up for us why quantum dots are coming up? What's the status quo and and what kind of problems are they addressing uh, with our electronic devices? Quantum dots are interesting to us as we look at electronics becoming more pervasive in our lives, we look at alternative semiconductors and particularly semiconductors that can be fabricated from solution that allows us to make low cost, large area devices. So we like quantum dots because we can handle them like inks and handle them and fabricate them from solution. And also because we can tailor their properties by controlling their composition, their size and their shape in order to design materials for different electronic and optoelectronic devices. So what are some of the things that quantum dots can do better and are maybe close to becoming available or maybe a little further away in time? The quantum dots that are closer are things that you already see in TVs, where we use them for their light-emitting properties. But quantum dots are semiconductors. And just like bulk semiconductors, we can think about building other types of devices that take advantage of their ability to move charge and their ability to interact with light. And so we think about and are looking in the future at building electronic and optoelectronic devices uh, from these quantum dots. So things like solar cells, sensors for light. Right. So we talk about sensors for light. We think about photodetectors. Mm -hmm. We can design them to operate at different wavelengths for different colors of light. We think about photovoltaics or solar cells. And then we also think about electronics where we introduce mobile, you know, our mobile electronics where we might have flexible electronic technologies. We have sensors that could be based on electronics or that could be based on sensing of light. Right. Often 
when a new technology comes to market, there are different challenges. As it scales up, as we see more and more of it coming out of factories and going to people's homes, what about toxicity and recycling when it comes to devices that use quantum dots? Right. So in some sense, they're very similar to bulk semiconductors. Mm-hmm. Some of the quantum dots, in particular, those based on 2.6 and 4.6. And when I say 2.6, I mean there are cadmium-containing quantum dots. There are lead-containing quantum dots. Those two were the ones that probably raised the most concern. And that's where there are a number of syntheses that are developing to create alternative chemistries that would be non-toxic. In the field, as they as it develops, it's possible to look at alternatives to those materials, but that build on some of the understanding that's gone into developing the materials and devices even out of these 2.6 and 4.6 semiconductors. Okay. Sherry, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate your time. Sherry Kagan and colleagues write a review on colloidal quantum dots in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.